Well, good morning again. Good to be with you, and we're back in John chapter 11. Uh, Next week, we have Curtis Cook for uh, Missions uh, Weekend, uh, a good friend of ours from Boston. Uh, Our youth group stayed there at his church, uh, faithfully preaching the gospel there. We did our uh, senior trip to Boston from there, and so it's a joy to have Curtis Cook up here. And the ladies, they're doing the Simeon Trust Workshop. Uh, He's hosting the Ladies Simeon Trust there uh, at his place uh, in February, so you'll get to know Curtis a little bit. Uh, It's always good to get to know different people uh, and to hear God's Word proclaimed through different servants. And it's a treat for us to also uh, embarrass some of our first-time guests. We do this every time somebody gets married at our church. So Christian and Faith, where are you? Just Christian. No Faith. Not feeling well. We will embarrass you next week. (laughs) Congratulations on your wedding. Welcome back. You look younger, and uh, the beard is gone. All right. Glad to have you with us, uh, Christian. Congratulations again. Well, uh, to get our uh, sermon underway, the title is, I am the one who changes everything. Uh, but by way of introduction, uh, Biz- Benjamin Disraeli was the uh, prime minister uh, of the United Kingdom for a while. And he said this, youth is a blunder. Old age is a struggle or adulthood is a struggle, but old age is a regret. Youth is a blunder. Adulthood is a struggle, but old age is a regret. I wonder, are you old enough to have any regrets? I don't know when it exactly begins, but there is some point in time, right, when that forward-looking expectation of the youth, of all that you're going to accomplish and you're just on top of the world, turns into that long, unforgiving stare of old age. We regret what is already past. And I know what you know as I turned 40 just last week. The older I get, the further back my regrets go. Do you carry around with you the seeds of regret? Do you feel regret for the things that you've said and done that can't be unsaid and undone? My friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you are keenly aware of your guilt. Maybe you've tried to numb that feeling uh, through substances. Maybe you've tried to uh, chase away that feeling of guilt through work or worldly pleasure. Or maybe you're here at a religious activity to participate, to do anything you can to silence that voice that keeps calling out, unclean, guilty, Well, what does Christianity have to offer for this issue of our guilt? You know, it has been said that Christianity is a religion of second chances, a do-over button, a let you wipe the slate clean. Is that the point of Christianity? Does Jesus Christ give second chances to people? We've been on a journey to life through the Gospel of John. And every week, yes, literally every week, you're probably sick of it, we've been answering just two questions. Who is Jesus and what is his purpose in coming? And John wants to make clear that Jesus does not give anyone a second chance. He gives something better, something way better. Jesus does not offer a second chance to overcome a life of regret. He offers you a redeemer to remove your guilt. Do you know the difference? 
Have you experienced the difference? Are you living in that difference? Today, here's the argument of the sermon. I want you to know that your Redeemer lives to take away your life of regret. In other words, in that face, in that long stare back, in the face of a life of regrets, take comfort that the heart of Christianity is not a redo, but a Redeemer who offers to remove our guilt. The Christian faith has tremendous resources that are absolutely unparalleled to deal with your guilt. In fact, our text this morning shows us that God deals with our guilt and he heals our guilt that can't be really gotten any other way. But first, we need to establish a critical element here. We have to establish that we are guilty, not just that we feel guilty. There's a big difference. So first, in verses 45 through 53, we see these religious authorities scheming to rid the world of Jesus. Point one, man scheming. They were scheming to rid the world of Jesus. This all happens on the tales of Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus' resurrection is the, the straw that broke the camel's back for them. But they first were witnesses. They saw Lazarus. They even smelled Lazarus' decomposing flesh. They would have been there at the funeral. They saw the stone rolled in front of the tomb. They heard Jesus pray to heaven at the tomb. They were there when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. They would have saw Lazarus hopping out from the grave. They were there when men unwrapped Lazarus from his grave clothes. They saw it all with their own eyes. Yet, despite all the evidence, these religious leaders do not care to believe. They are too interested in themselves. They're asking, what is Jesus going to cost me? And these Jewish leaders can't connect the dots. They're good accountants. Look with me at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, that's the temple, and our nation. So we see that the resurrection of Lazarus really is the final sign that breaks the Pharisees back. They've had enough. Their position, their privilege, their power, all of that now is at stake. It's vulnerable. They sense that they could lose everything. And they're not crazy for thinking so. I mean, the Romans only tolerate the Jews as long as they don't cause trouble. And Jesus looks like trouble. And so they plot to take Jesus out so that life can just go back to normal. They plot to take Jesus out so life can go back to normal. Look at 49 through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Surely a way to win people, right? Make friends and influence people. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. These plans they were resolute in. They were so committed to these plans that they even turned it into a Christian song to teach their children. I have decided to murder Jesus. I have decided to murder Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
They planned it, they plotted it, and they accomplished it. Right? Jesus will hang on a cross. He will die. And for three days, these religious leaders will have peace. Life will be back to normal. As tragic as that is for them, it is even a tragedy for us today as well, for all who reject Jesus. Here's the point. This Jesus will disrupt your life. This Jesus does disrupt everything I have. So before you look at these fools and you say, I can't believe they would do those things, would you please look in the mirror? Before you execute judgment on them, would you examine your own hearts? Faith family, are we like them? Are you willing to rid the world of Jesus so that he would not disrupt your life? Are you scheming to get rid of God so that you can be God? Friends, that is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. If you're exploring Christianity, I know sin is kind of a buzzword, but really sin is this, ridding the world of God so that you can take his place, taking his prerogatives that belong to him alone, and consider that every time you make a decision on how you're going to live your life, how you're going to spend your money, how you're going to use your body, how you're going to use your time and talents and treasures. When we do that on our own without any reference to God, any submission to his authority over us, we are impersonating God. Now, in our secular world, when you impersonate a police officer, it is a crime. Impersonate. If you're not a police officer and it's not Halloween, I know we just got through that, so you're thinking, actually, I was a cop for Halloween. No. Okay, so it's not Halloween, you're not a cop, and you dress up like a cop. That's a criminal offense. Why? It disrupts a society. People treat you differently. They would look to you for authority, for protection, for safety, for direction. They would look to you for those things. And by being in a role that is not yours, you are lying. You're taking on a position that's not yours, and it disrupts the whole thing. People can't know who to trust. And if you could go to jail for impersonating a police officer, by way of analogy, how much more severe is it when you try to impersonate God to disrupt the order of the whole cosmos to try to get everyone around you to treat you and to look to you that it's going to be your ways at home and your ways at work and that you know best and you'll provide and it's your plans and when we try to get the whole world spending around us and all of us think that we're God and we're all impersonating him with some really bad outfits I mean they're not even close okay man we create we create chaos and disorder and disruption and we're guilty. We are all guilty of playing God. And it's not just a feeling of guilt. It's actual guilt. My friends, there is real, actual, moral, objective standards. And your guilt is telling you that those real, objective, and moral standards demand a real, actual, moral accounting. Your guilt this morning is trying to tell you something. The question is, are you listening? Your guilt saying you're the source of your guilt. You deserve, because of your guilt, a just and right punishment. A redo that 
will not work because it will not silence that voice. Like Lady Macbeth, right? She's found walking in her sleep, and she's scrubbing her hands, muttering over and over and over again, out, 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 damn spot, because nothing seems to scrub her life clean. Well, if that's you, if you can identify with Lady Macbeth, keep listening, because John has some very good news for you. Let me quote a different John. He's a theologian from uh, England. His name is John Stott, and he says this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. In other words, to overcome man's scheming to put himself in a place he doesn't belong, God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Point one, man's scheming. Point two, God's dealing. Point one, Caiaphas planned this. We killed Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. Point two, God planned. I'll kill my son so I don't have to kill you. Point one, we substitute Jesus for ourselves. Point two, God substitute Jesus for his enemies. Listen again to verses 49 through 52, and I want you to pay attention to a small little word. It's a three-letter word. It says it's four. It occurs four times, F-O-U-R. The little word four occurs four times. Yes, tongue twister. And instead of, and to highlight the significance of this, let's go ahead and replace the word for with on behalf of. Because the whole idea here is this idea of substitution, Christ on our behalf. So let's look at verse 49 through 52, replacing the word for with on behalf of. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better on behalf of you that one man should die on behalf of the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. And not on behalf of the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God deals with our guilt. He removes our guilt by a substitution. And so Jesus deliberately, willingly, purposefully heads to his death as a substitute on behalf of. And isn't it remarkable that Caiaphas's plot, with all of its evil and self-centeredness to safeguard the nation, actually achieves God's plan with all of its mercy and love and grace to actually save the nation from perishing. I've loved the irony here because Mr. You-don't-know-nothing actually doesn't know nothing himself. He throws himself underneath the exact same bus. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead, out of the way. So he spoke these words, words that he thought of on his own. And Mr. You-don't-know-nothing doesn't know that he's no more than Balaam's ass. Because God's putting words in his mouth to accomplish his plans because God wants Jesus dead so that he can rise and reign. And so he spoke these words because it is truly better that Jesus dies than that we should perish. 
It is God's best plan. There isn't a better plan in the universe. For the death of Jesus is how God removes our guilt so that we don't perish but underneath its penalty, but that we actually live. Christ dies so that we live. And while God substituted Jesus might be familiar to you, you've heard that in church, we hope that's the essence of Christianity. God substitutes himself for you. Let me ask you, even as familiar as it is, has it become personal to you? We do an affirmation of faith every single week because there are certain things that Christians have to believe. And so if you're here this morning and you said, the Son of God was born, He died, He was raised, He ascended, He's coming back. That doesn't make you a Christian. The essence of Christianity is this. If you say the Son of God was born for me, He died for me. He rose again for me. He ascended for me, and he's returning. He's coming back for me. That's the essence of Christianity. So let's make it personal. I, Josh Owens, am guilty before God. Things I've said, thought, and done. I can't remove my guilt on my own. I cannot purge myself clean. I deserve to perish and be separated from God forever. But God has provided a substitute for me to take my place, to take my punishment on my behalf so that Josh Owens does not perish but has everlasting life. Have you done that? Can you say Christ died for Well, if you're willing to admit that your guilt is more than a feeling and you are willing to trust in God's dealing, then there can be a healing of your guilt. I don't know if you heard that. Erin Reed is smiling. She knows that for the first time ever, this guy made a sermon outline that rhymed. Did you guys find joy in that? Erin did. She's like, I I caught it. I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, well. (laughs) <laughs> it was fun, and uh, yeah, it might stick with you. Okay, so how do you experience healing from your guilt? You know that you have guilt. It's more than just a feeling. Then you see how God's going to deal with it, but have you been healed by it? I hope that I have made the point so far that you do not need a redo, but you need a redeemer, right? That the removal of your guilt takes more than a second attempt. It takes a second-to-none unique sacrifice, and that God has removed your guilt by the substitutionary payment of Jesus Christ for your sins. But the real question is now, as Christians, is how do you live in that? Faith family, have you experienced guilt-free living? I ask that question because I've talked to a lot of you, and a lot of us kick ourselves all week long. I've been a pastor here long enough to see that there are people that rotate churches just because they like different pastors that whip them differently and it helps them feel like they are bad and they like that. And so they move on from church to church to chase that feeling of, I'm not worthy. But we start off the service with, with what Stephen Muzzy called out from Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We know that. Do you live in that? Have you learned to look at what Jesus did for you? Or do you continue to say, what Jesus did isn't enough? 
It can't cover me. I'm too guilty. My life is too stained. I wish I would have brought up an actual visual illustration, but there's been so many visuals this morning. I think that you can just track with me. Do you think of your life as this huge piece of bread? And that Jesus and what he has done only covers you like a little bit of butter. And you just don't have enough to spread it over all the corners of your life. And you just think, not me. Too guilty. Too stained. I encourage you not to think so much about your life of regrets. But to think about the character of your Redeemer. Think more about him. He paid your pardon completely. And not to put you on probation. So there'd be no condemnation for you. Christ's death is sufficient to remove your guilt. Christ's death is effective to remove your guilt. And his resurrection is the proof to be healed of your guilt. Would you hold on to the receipt of the resurrection? How do you know that all of your sins are really paid in full? Just like you'd know if you really paid in full for anything at Sam's Club. What do they give you at Sam's Club after you checked yourself out? A huge receipt. And what do you have to do at the door when someone says, did you really pay for everything? What do you have to show them? The receipt. And there is somebody who goes through what's in your bag and what's on your receipt and puts a yellow highlighter and it means, I agree paid in full. Faith family, the reason why you still feel like there is that voice, and you still feel like kicking yourself all week long, is we haven't really thought deeply enough about his work on the cross and his victorious resurrection as the receipt paid in full, which means that the guilt has been paid. His death and resurrection means that you will never have to pay for those sins. Christ does not offer us a redo. He is our Redeemer. Would you put your faith in Him? If you're here and you're not a Christian, it's a costly thing to have a Redeemer. But I just ask you, how much more costly is it not to have Christ as your Redeemer? Total up your life of regrets. Total up carrying that around with you. Total up just wishing that you could redo it, knowing that it can't be unsaid and undone. Look to this Redeemer who stands to take your place. Turn from your sins, trust Him, and be healed to walk in newness of life from this life of guilt. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your plan, your plan that can overcome the schemes of man, your plan that can make a man say and be right that it is better for one man to perish than for the whole nation, and it is completely true at one level, and yet he's saying things that he doesn't know at a whole other level. We thank you that you substituted your son for us. We were not redeemed by perishable things, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. God, we pray that you would have mercy on us and forgive us for thinking too little of you. 
Lord, we ask you to forgive us for even thinking too little of our sins. When we try to deal with that guilt, that we just try to minimize it or say it's not that bad, Lord, we pray that you give us gospel faith to know, say that it really is that bad. I deserve punishment. I deserve to perish. But what you've done is so much better. So we just thank you that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And we thank you that we can walk fully redeemed, fully confident, assured that in Christ there is no condemnation. Pray that you would heal these weary sojourners along the way of the feeling of their guilt by looking at the actual atoning of their guilt by the Son. Pray that we would just proclaim your death, that we would glory in it, not how often we did our devotions, not how faithful we were in prayer, not how faithful we were in church. We would just glory this morning that you did it all for us. And from that, would it motivate us to live this out, to live as redeemed, purchased, bought. We have a different owner, a different master, and you are good. And we praise you for that goodness as we see displayed on the cross. It is the power of the cross to give us victory over sin and resurrection to come. We look forward to that day, and we will serve you until you come. Restore our hope. Restore our love for you if we've wondered. And we pray you give us the faith to continue on with you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing.